deserve and get all the glory and honor that you deserve and all the praise that you so deserve from every tongue and nation. And Father, we want you to be lifted high in our hearts in this world. And I pray, Lord, that you would work through us so that the gospel would go out through us to the nations, uh, out of this church, out into our neighborhoods, out into our colleagues, out into uh, the people that we have interactions with, that we would be able to bring them in to the fold of God so that together we can turn and say glory and honor and praise be to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is faithful and true, and that your name would be lifted high in all of our hearts. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. pray, Lord, that you would speak through Pastor Patrick and that we would listen with open hearts and open ears. In your son's precious, holy, and worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam and Kelly and Josh, for leading us in wonderful worship through song. What a blessing it is every Lord's Day when we gather uh, to sing songs that are not only just amazing songs, but they're rich with uh, verses that we've been studying, with themes that we've been studying. So thank you so much for putting thought into that, putting uh, just excellence into uh, picking those songs. I know you and Luke do that every time. So thank you, Sam. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. It is the week of Thanksgiving, and normally we would do a little bit of a Thanksgiving uh, message. We're going to save that for next Sunday because I want to finish out Revelation 19. And honestly, this is a Thanksgiving message because it's about Jesus coming back, which that will give us reason to be thankful. It's also about a feast. There's a huge feast that's happening, just like we will be feasting on Thursday. There's a feast that's going to be taking place at the end of this chapter. We will feast on Thursday with our family and our friends. We'll eat a delicious turkey. It's not my favorite bird to eat. I remember my uncle would always say, man, that's a good bird. That's a good bird right there. And I mean, turkey's great, and I praise the Lord for food, but it's not my favorite bird to eat. Here's one bird that I bet you've never eaten. And if you have, I want to know what it was like. Anybody ever had vulture before? Anybody eaten a vulture? Uh, this introduction comes to you by way of wild crats. For those of you who don't know, <laughs> those of you who don't know wild crats, you're missing out. Those of you who do, you obviously have children. Uh, or maybe you grew up in uh, the, the under the, the Crat Brothers tutelage. I remember when I was growing up, I used to watch the Crat Brothers, Chris and Martin Crat. They're just on PBS, uh, they would do these little animal shows. I remember they first started with, I don't remember what it was called, it was like the Crap Brothers something, and it was just always them live doing whatever they were doing. And then it was Zaboomafoom. Do you guys remember Zaboomafoom? Second iteration of the Wild Kratts. And they had a little puppet that kind of took over half of the show because they were starting to get older and they needed a puppet to do their job for them. And now it's Wild Kratts that my kids love to watch Wild Kratts. And it's just, I mean, uh, it's like 30 seconds at the beginning and at the end of them actually in person because they're now very old and they look it. And uh, they now just have an animated show because, hey, let the, uh, let the drawings do all the work. <laughs> there are 23 different species of vultures. They can fly above 30,000 feet. That's taller than Mount Everest. That's where we're flying. That's where we fly when we're flying in airplanes. There was a plane that flew uh, over Africa a few years ago at around 37,000 feet, and it hit something. And when they landed the plane, they realized what they'd hit. It got stuck in the plane in the windshield, 
It was a vulture. They hit a vulture. Vultures can see a rat carcass four miles away from wherever they are. Four miles away. They eat dead animals. That's kind of their job. Uh, one of the reasons why God invented them was because dead bodies, as they compose, they create anthrax, which is poisonous. But vultures can eat anthrax, no problem. So they eat the dead animals, they get rid of the anthrax, we don't have the poison, and they get a meal. They don't have feathers on their head. Very interesting reason why, because when they're eating the decomposing, or the decomposing bodies, the carcasses, as they're feasting on those, they kind of get up all in the animals, and, and they get all the blood and acid and juices on their heads, and uh, if it was just going to stay there, it would burn into their scalp, but because they don't have feathers, it doesn't latch onto their head, and as they fly back up, uh, whatever does remain on their head, because they're bald up there, it just burns off from the sun. God invented them for their specific purpose. If vultures are attacked, I love this one, if vultures are attacked, one of their main defense mechanisms is to throw up as they're being attacked. So as something's running after them, they just throw up. And either it, number one, freaks the, the predator out, like, what are you doing? Or number two, you know what? I'll take this free meal, and you can go on your way. <laughs> and we collectively groan. <laughs> Vultures eat 20% of their body weight in each sitting. So as they find a dead carcass, they will eat 20% of their body, body weight. And that's why this is an introduction to a Thanksgiving service, because that's what I do at Thanksgiving. 20% of my body weight, I'm eating it. Why did God make this very strange, in my opinion, very ugly bird? It's very disgusting. Well, one reason, to get rid of all the decomposing carcasses out there, to get rid of the anthrax and to clean up the world. But there's a second reason why God made vultures. He made them for Revelation 19. He made vultures explicitly to do a job at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. And we're going to see the job that they do here as we finish out Revelation 19. Let's begin reading in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all of the birds, that's the word for vulture or eagle, which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all of the vultures were filled with their flesh. Father, we have spent many months now in this latter portion of Revelation, beginning at the end of chapter 16 with the seven bowls that were poured out, the judgments of your wrath being poured out onto the, onto the earth. It started to get very serious very quickly, and then we studied 17 and 18, seeing your 
condemnation of the, the harlot of Babylon, the, the woman who was the embodiment of the religious system, false religion. It seems week after week like it's judgment after judgment, and, and yet again here we, we are finding ourselves at the end of the battle of Armageddon where it's just judgment. It'd be very easy to think that there's no hope here, and we'd be wrong. It'd be very easy to feel that there's no redemption here. Maybe somehow you're unfair or unkind or unjust, and again, we'd be wrong. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. As a church, we've seen and stared at your judgment week after week, and and we're getting to a time when there is no judgment, when we get into Revelation 21 and 22, we get to stare at the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We long for that day. But Father, being reminded of judgment is so important. If we're believers in Jesus, if we follow him and we love him and we treasure him more than anything in this world, it is still imperative that we stare at judgment because that is what we have been saved from so it will cause us to worship And that is what our friends and our family who do not know you are going to. So this will motivate our evangelism. It is only heaven and hell that are the options for us in the afterlife. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would sober our minds, quicken our spirits. Give us a taste for how awful this wrath truly is and Encourage us that that wrath has been poured out on Christ. Convict us this morning to bow the knee to Jesus as King. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. If you do not open our eyes and give us the gift of illumination, we will not see what we need to see. So Holy Spirit, be pleased to show us Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. At the end of Revelation, we have studied, Revelation 19, we've studied the second coming of Jesus that leads us into the battle of Armageddon. And just by way of summary, for those of you, many of you uh, serve in the children's ministry downstairs, and I really appreciate that. And so I just kind of wanted to do one quick flyby of of where we've uh, been in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1, we see the description of Jesus, that's John, falling down at the feet of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, uh, the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And Jesus says, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will be that are yet to come. That's kind of the division of this book. The outline of this book is the things which are, which, uh, or the things which John has seen, which is chapter 1, the things which are, which is chapter 2 and 3. That's what John is currently going through with the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then the things which will be, I mean, you could put four and five, chapter four and five in there as well, the things that are that are going on in heaven, but the things that will be definitely are chapter six through the end of the book. So chapter one, the description of Jesus, chapter two and three, those seven letters to the seven churches, real churches, literal churches that were existing back then that have principles for us today as church, as a church today. Then Revelation 4 and 5, John is uh, taken into the throne room. He sees the throne room of God. He sees that there is a scroll, and on that scroll and in that scroll is really the title deed to the earth to reclaim the earth, to end all of human history, to bring back redemption and ultimate salvation and a kingdom for the people of God. But no one is able to open that scroll, and so everyone 
is weeping. John is weeping in heaven and everyone around John seeing him weep. They say, stop weeping because there is one who can open the scroll. It's the lion. It's the lamb. It's the slain. It's the slain lamb of God. And so Jesus takes that scroll and begins opening it. And that's when chapter 6, that's when we begin the future event. So chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 is the period of seven years that we keep talking about. That uh, Daniel's 70th week, that prophesied week of a seven-year period. Some refer to it as the tribulation. Some refer to it as Daniel's 70th week. There's many different ways you can name that future period of seven years. At the beginning of that period of seven years, you have the seal judgments that happen in chapter 6. You have the trumpet judgments towards the middle and then moving in towards the end. And then you have the bowl judgments at the very, very end of Daniel's 70th week. So we've been staring at for a very long time Chapter 6 through 19, this period of seven years that we'd call the tribulation, this period of end time, suffering, absolute chaos, judgment, and God's wrath being poured out. Interspersed throughout our study of that, John is given these little vignettes and these little uh, just kind of a, a reprieve of uh, being able to pull back from the judgment that's being poured out. So chapter 7, you see Israel being sealed. You see saints being brought to heaven. You see the reality of even though God's judgment is being poured out, people are still being saved. Chapter 8 and 9, you see the trumpet judgments. And then there was a reprieve in chapter 10. The, the angel that talks, that mighty angel that talks to John, gives him the little book that he needs to eat. And it's bitter, but it's also sweet. The ending of human history is a sweet thing, but it's also a bitter thing. It's sweet because Jesus comes back. It's bitter because those who have rejected Jesus never again have a chance to bow the knee to him. You see chapter 11, the two witnesses uh, that probably show up on the scene a little bit uh, before the middle of Daniel's 70th week, before that abomination of desolation is committed by the Antichrist. He's gained power. He's taken power. He's gained control with that first, those first couple of seals, but he did so in somewhat of a peaceable fashion. And then halfway through Daniel's 70th week, he's going to turn. He's going to turn on Israel. He's going to break his treaty with Israel. He's going to commit that abomination of desolation that's described in Daniel uh, and as well as uh, with Jesus and all of that discourse. Then in chapter 12, there was another reprieve because you begin to see the Antichrist going after uh, Israel. Why is Israel the target? Why, why does the world want Israel to be killed? And so we, we got the answer for that in chapter 12. We met this symbolic woman and the symbolic child and the symbolic dragon. The woman is Israel, the child is Jesus and the, the Messiah, and the dragon is the devil. And the dragon wanted to kill the woman and then couldn't kill the woman, wanted to kill the seed of the woman because the seed of the woman's going to crush his head, can't kill the seed of the woman through his attempt, whether it's uh, Herod or uh, so many different ways to try and kill Jesus doesn't work. And so if he can't kill Jesus and Jesus ascends into heaven, then he's going to kill anyone who follows Jesus, not only Jesus' people, uh, ethnically speaking, the Jews, but also those who follow Jesus as believers. Then we met the Antichrist in full in chapter 13. We saw a vision in chapter 14 of the end that the Antichrist isn't going to win, even though he gains all this power. John is quickly told he's not going to win. Chapter 15, another reprieve, now in heaven, before the bold judgments are poured out, a reminder of the justice of God, the grace of God, that he has given grace. He's not unfair in what he's about to do. Chapter 16 is all of those bold judgments, which are just devastating. That's why chapter 17 and 18 give the answer to the question, wait, why are these so devastating? What happened? Who is Babylon that these are so devastating? That was all of chapter 17 and 18. 
And finally, chapter 19, we see the second coming of Jesus in the Battle of Armageddon, which will lead us into chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And at the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ, at the end of chapter 20, we have the great white throne judgment. And then after the great white throne judgment, chapter 21 and 22 is what we'd call the eternal state. Heaven and, and the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the eternal lake of fire. We have those two in chapter 21 and 22. So we're almost near the end of all of human history. Now, I say all of that. There are different views to how Revelation is taken. There's different views to the end times. I, I hold these views loosely. Some people try to use current events. We've had, I've had so many conversations with many of you about, hey, could Jesus come back in our lifetime? Absolutely he could. And sometimes it feels like we're set up for that, right? Like, ooh, this is it. This is the end times. But every conversation I have with all of you ends up kind of going back to, you know what? Every generation's felt that, right? You think about World War I. I mean, they must have thought, number one, you had the, the Spanish flu going on, which is way worse than COVID. And number two, you have World War I, which is this destructive war of attrition that you feel like, is anyone going to survive? Surely Jesus is going to come back because we're headed to the Battle of Armageddon. That was in the early 1900s. We're, we're 100 years removed from that. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. So, yes, Jesus totally could come back at any time. And maybe it is our lifetime. I pray it is. But just two reminders before we dive into the end of chapter 19. Number one, current events are no guideline for interpreting Scripture. Current events are never a guideline for interpreting the Scriptures. The Scriptures interpret current events. So sometimes things align and you go, ooh, this is close. This sounds like it could be, but it also might not be. That's what happened in uh, the 1940s when, when Israel became a nation again. That's a partial fulfillment of prophecy. And so a lot of people back in that generation said, this is it. Jesus is going to come back because Israel has been brought back into their land. They're a nation. And Jesus now can come back and rule and reign over the people of Israel in the kingdom of Israel. Just as easily, somebody could come along disperse Israel, uh, make Israel not a state anymore, not a territory to themselves anymore, and we could start the whole thing over again. So that's why current events are no guideline for interpreting Scripture. Secondly, we need to be humble as we approach prophetic events to the end times. Because, just, just by way of example, remember Despite the wealth of detailed prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first coming, only a few people actually recognized the event when it occurred. Very few people actually recognized the event when it happened. So, too, we need to be very careful to think we know everything that's going to happen in the end times. We need to be very cautious about being dogmatic. And so that's why, for myself, I have a uh, an outline, uh, an interpretation of the events of the end times, but definitely not going to burn at the stake for these events. I always tell people there are uh, tiers of theological systems that I hold to that I believe, and the top tier is I will burn at the stake for that, right? I will burn at the stake for the deity of Christ. I will burn at the stake for the gospel. If you want to kill me because I believe Jesus is exclusively the only way to be saved, kill me. If you want to burn me at the stake for being pre-trib, I'll change in an instant, right? Like, that is not an area of salvation. So that tells me, that's always my question, is this an issue that you would burn at the stake for? And if you would say no, then that tells me we're not in tier number one here. We're not in gospel territory. 
If it's a salvific issue, we stand firm on it, we hold to it, and we won't budge. But I don't think the end times are salvific issues when it comes to the timeline of those chronological events. Let's be humble as we hold to them. And let's hold clearly what we do know. And what we do know is, and pretty much every system of uh, eschatology, eschatology is the study of the end times, pretty much every system, except for one little system, every system does agree with the reality of the second coming. Every system does agree with the reality of the second coming. There's one system that doesn't. We'll talk about this when we introduce chapter 20 in a few weeks. Now, I say that just by way of a, a reminder of where we've come from, where we've been, where we are now, we're at the end of that seven-year period of time. At the end times, Jesus has come back. We saw that last week. This is the second coming, the prophesied second coming of Christ. We saw it prophesied in the Old Testament, in the New Testament by Jesus himself, by the apostles. And now here we see it happening in chapter 19. We see the one, he was never described, uh, he was never called Jesus. He was described as, number one, the faithful and true. Number two, the name written which no one knows but himself. Number three, the word of God. And number four, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this really is uh, the return of the king. And Kelly was absolutely correct when she said that it made her think of Lord of the Rings. I originally wanted to preach both of these sections together, and the sermon was going to be called The Return of the King and the Last Battle, which would have just been beautiful for me in my poetic mindset of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis together in one. And if you agree with that, thanks for being a nerd with me. But here we have Jesus coming back. First time he came, he came as a humble, lowly baby. Second time, he's coming as a warrior. First time, he, he rode into Jerusalem on a baby donkey, which must have looked really awkward and silly. Second time, he's riding in on a white horse. That leads us to where we are this morning. Verse 17, we're going to split this uh, paragraph up into three sections. Number one, we see the summons to the feast. Number one, the summons to the feast. This is verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, literally standing where the sun is. So uh, apparently the darkness has lifted, that darkness of the fifth bowl is probably lifted by this time. Still, the sun has been thoroughly destroyed. Uh, there is probably an outline of the sun, or maybe this is just standing where the sun normally is. The whole point of that phrase is the highest point in the sky where everyone can see this angel. And he cries out with a loud voice, says to all of the vultures, that word for bird is uh, same word that we saw in chapter 18, verse 2. If you go back there just really quickly, chapter 18, verse 2. The Babylon, she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Every vulture, every uh, bird that's going to devour dead carcasses. They're incredibly swift in finding their prey. And this angel summons all of these birds which fly in mid-heaven, come and assemble for the great supper of God. Earlier we saw the great marriage supper of the Lamb, and now we have a second supper, and this is the supper of God, but it's a supper where the vultures feast on the bodies of those who have been slain. I want to take you to Ezekiel, because as this angel is crying out and summoning the birds to the feast, I want to show you that, once again, this is not new information to an Old Testament mind, to somebody who loves and knows the Old Testament. This would instantly take them back to Ezekiel chapter 39. 
There's actually several passages that deal with the birds feasting on the flesh of those who will be destroyed at this battle. But Ezekiel chapter 39, this battle is prophesied, this feast is prophesied. Verse 1, you son of man prophesy against Gog. Gog is the the modern day stand countries. Prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and I will drive you on. Remember, that's language of what God did in the bowl judgments. Remember, one of the bowls was to dry up the Euphrates River to make it possible to pass over into Israel from these stand countries to make your way in there. And then you remember the, the unclean spirits that come from the, uh, the beast and the false prophet, the frogs that come out of their mouths that are able to um, bring all of the nations to them, bring all of the nations and all of the people in the world to gather at the battle of Armageddon. God says, I'm the one doing that. I'm going to take you up from the remotest parts of the north and I'll bring you against the mountains of Israel. There, there's the mountains of Israel. Armageddon, remember, just means mounts of Megiddo and Megiddo is a valley. And so the mountains around, that's where they're going to station. I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash your arrows from your right hand. Notice the imagery there. I'm not an archer, but if you have a bow in your left hand and you have an arrow in your right hand, that's not going to help you unless you put them together and pull back, right? So these people don't even have time to reload their weapons. They have their bow, they're getting ready to reload, and God destroys them before they're even ready to fight back. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all of your troops and the peoples who are with you, and I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. If you drop down to verse 17, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird, to every beast of the field, assemble, come, gather for, from every side of my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice in the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. And on and on it goes. So again, this is known territory. For somebody who knows the Old Testament, they know we're entering into that last battle that Jesus is going to conquer. The Messiah is going to destroy his foes. Turn to Zechariah. I want to show you one other passage. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 9 through 14 describes the return of the Lord. Jesus returns with his uh, angels. Israel gets saved. As he's coming back, all of Israel, Romans 11 says that they are going to get saved. That's the whole point of the tribulation is to bring Israel back to a place of repentance and longing for their Messiah. Families get saved. Mothers get saved first, according to Zechariah. Then uh, children, then the fathers, all in preparation for this battle. And we pick it up in chapter 14. Verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided against you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. So that's, again, this prophecy of gathering everyone to this place. They'll gather for battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. 
in that day, this is the day of the second coming of Jesus, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake on the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. And if you drop down to verse 12, there's a prophecy of how destructive this battle will be. Verse 12, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. They will seize one another's hands and the hand of one another will be lifted up against the other. Jesus in Luke 17, 37 and parallel passage in Matthew 24, 28 in the Olivet Discourse said that wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather to eat. Joel chapter 3 describes this. Isaiah chapter 13 describes this. So again, all this was described in the Old Testament, that there's coming a day when there's going to be a battle during this period that we would call the day of the Lord. This is the battle where Jesus is going to return. The Messiah is going to return. He's going to conquer every single foe against him. And the birds will eat their flesh. Turn back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 describes that exact event happening. The angel says, come, assemble for the supper. You've been waiting for it. It's finally here. This is a horrible picture of human carnage. And it'd be very easy for us to look and go, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to learn about that. And there's a lot of things that we can learn from this, but just one I want to highlight. Looking at all of those Old Testament prophecies that happened hundreds of years before this event was prophesied in Revelation and has happened thousands of years before it's actually taking place. God knew it was going to happen. He planned that it was going to happen. He knows the future and he controls the future. So just these two verses, and really we've only covered verse 17, just one verse, reminds us of this reality. God knows the future, God controls the future, and he's going to plan that that future that he wants to come about will come about. Nothing can stop that. So for you and for me, application, if we don't know the plan, we can just trust that there is a plan, right? If you don't know what the plan is, you can just trust that there is a plan. This is a conversation that, that we have with our kids all the time, right? They will say, what are we, what are we gonna do tomorrow? What's, when's this gonna happen? When are we gonna go? When are we gonna stay? What are we gonna do? And sometimes all those questions just become so much and you don't really know what to do with it. And you're just able to say, hey, do you trust that I have a plan? Do you trust that I love you, that I care about you, and that I know how it's gonna go about and you're gonna have a great day tomorrow and I'll help make it happen? Do you trust me? And kids will go, yes, I do. And sometimes, not often, but sometimes that ends their line of questioning and you're able to move on. That's what's happening here. God has a plan. And if we don't know what the plan is, we can trust that he has one. Secondly, not only do we see the summons to the feast, but secondly, we see the slaughter of the foes. The slaughter of the foes. We see the summons to the feast, and then we see the slaughter of the foes. This is verses 18 through 20, really the end of verse 18. Come assemble for the great supper of God, so you may eat the flesh of kings. Those are the, the rulers of these little nation states, nation cities that have been working with the, the Antichrist. And the commanders over the armies... 
and the flesh of the mighty men in the armies, and the flesh of the horses that those mighty men sit on, and then of those, all men, the flesh of all men, those free men and slaves, both great and small. That all men refers to everyone else who's alive. So you've got the commanders of the armies, you've got the armies themselves, and then you have everyone else. Because at this time, not only has the population been whittled down to you know, a few million, but also at this time, you have a very clear delineation between who's for Jesus and who's against Jesus. There's no middle ground by the time we get to chapter 19. There's no Switzerland in this battle. No UN peacekeepers that rule over this. When Revelation 16 told us about this battle, that it's the sickle being put in, the wine press uh, being crushed and trodden under the feet of the Messiah. But you have everyone showing up. The flesh of all men, both free and slaves, both small and great. If you go back in chapter 19, Jesus had said that earlier, that we have the testimony of those who get to gather at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great men, those who are uh, free, those who are slaves, they get to gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are uh, small and those who are great, they get to gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's no socioeconomic division about who gets to gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb in salvation with Christ, and there's also no socioeconomic division about who's going to be judged. That's not why you're judged. You're judged because of your deeds, not because of your status. So, this battle takes place, as we saw in Zechariah 14, as Jesus descends on the Mount of Olives, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, he's going to take over Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to battle at the Battle of Armageddon in the, in the Valley of Megiddo. And he's targeting specifically three people that are on his most wanted list. The three people on his most wanted list are the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the devil himself. And each enemy that we've seen raise up against God will exit, I love this, they will exit in the reverse order that they showed up. So you remember chapter 12, the dragon shows up. Chapter 13, the Antichrist shows up, the false prophet shows up, and then the end of chapter 16, Babylon shows up. Chapter 17 and 18, Babylon is destroyed. False prophet and the Antichrist are destroyed in chapter 19, and then chapter 20, the, beast is, uh, the devil is going to be taken and put into the abyss, held for a thousand years and then finally destroyed in the lake of fire. So you have this beautiful poetry of the way that these enemies tried to rise up against God and the way that God's going to ultimately take them out one by one. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, so the beast is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. I love that. With him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. In case you might sense uh, maybe some unfairness that, oh, God's being a little too harsh with this false prophet. No, he's not being too harsh with this false prophet. The false prophet was the one who performed signs in the presence of the Antichrist to deceive the world to fall down and worship the Antichrist. This false prophet is deserving of every ounce of judgment he's going to get. And I just love, again, how every time God says, I'm going to bring judgment, he always gives a reason why. Here's a reason why. It's not unfounded. It's not with a lack of grace or with a lack of uh, plea to repent. They have decided what they want to do with their lives. And they will be judged for it. 
middle of verse 20. These two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is the first time in the Bible that we come across that phrase, lake of fire. First mention of it anywhere in the Bible. Now, you see a number of places where uh, dead people go in the Bible. Uh, You see a number of places where demonic spirits go. We saw one earlier, the abyss. And that's where Satan is going to be locked up for a thousand years in Revelation 20, the abyss. The lake of fire is not the abyss. The lake of fire is also distinct from what we could call Hades or what we could call hell. Hell, if you think about it right now, if somebody dies in their sin, apart from trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, they would die and they would be sentenced in hell for, uh, for eternity. They'd be in hell. They'd go to hell. That's what Hebrews says, right? It's appointed unto man once to die and then you're judged. So you're judged immediately after you die. Same for believers. You're judged immediately after you die. Be in the seat of judgment. You're given your rewards and then you go into heaven. But just like there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth in the eternal state for believers, there's also going to be a new place of punishment for non-believers. And that's what's called the lake of fire. So we have right now in the present, if you die knowing Jesus, you go to be with him. That's what Paul says, right? To absent from the body is present with the Lord. To depart now is, is great because then I get to be with Jesus. So if you're here in the present and you die as a believer, you go into heaven And then ultimately that heaven is going to be recreated, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem in the eternal state. Likewise, if you're here in the present and you're a non-believer, you die, you go to hell. And then that hell will be ultimately put into a place called the lake of fire. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. This will hopefully make it uh, crystal clear. Death and Hades, this is at the great white throne judgment, death and Hades or hell is thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is not hell. Hell will be thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time. This tells us a couple things. Uh, Number one, if you go down to verse 10 in chapter 20, the devil who deceived the world is thrown. This is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where... The beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's where they are also. So they're thrown into, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the battle of Armageddon, and they're still there at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ before the great white throne judgment. They're still there. That's informative because that tells us that the lake of fire is not purgative. It's not purging you from sin. It's not making, it's not cleansing you. It's not a fire that cleanses you of your sin to make you holy to be able to go to heaven. It also doesn't end. They've been there for a thousand years and they're still there. So you don't cease to exist because you're going to continue existing there day and night forever and ever. They've been there for a thousand years and they're going to exist for a thousand years. They will never die. It also informs us not only that hell is not purgative, it's punitive, and hell is eternal, it's not a a finite time, but it also informs us, and I think that this is really imperative. You remember when Jesus said, 
to the Pharisees and to Israel when they rejected him, he said, it will be easier on that day. It'll be easier that the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon and Chorazim, they're all going to receive an easier judgment than you'll get. You've received truth and rejected it such that they get an easier judgment. Hell is bad for everyone. There's no one for which hell is easy. But there seem to be, not in a Dante's kind of way, but there seem to be degrees of punishment in hell based off of the truth that you know and what you did with that truth. And that's why Jesus says their punishment will be much easier than your punishment was, will be harder. You're a false teacher leading people to hell. You're the blind leading the blind, the Pharisees are. So then how much more so will the Antichrist and the false prophet be destroyed? So notice they're going to be thrown right after the battle of Armageddon into the lake of fire instantly. But notice where the rest of the dead go. Go back to chapter 19, verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. They're killed. So the rest of those who are in the world, who have the mark of the beast, who are fighting against Jesus, they're killed and they'll go to hell, but they're not going straight to the lake of fire yet. The Antichrist and the false prophet are instantly thrown into the lake of fire to receive that, that eternal judgment right now, right in this moment, whereas the rest of the dead aren't thrown there yet. This is so instructive to us for so many different reasons, but if we're thinking about the first point, the summons to the feast, God knows the future, he controls the future. He has a plan for it, and we can trust it even when we don't know what the plan is. Secondly, I think that we can apply this reality to say God wins the future. He doesn't just know what's going to happen and can control what's going to happen, but it's going to lose. Holiness is going to win. Righteousness is going to win. The devil will be ultimately destroyed, which we're going to see, uh, Lord willing, in the coming months ahead in chapter 20. But the people that he used to deceive the world, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are going to be destroyed. And then everyone who took the mark of the beast will be destroyed as well, killed with the sword. God knows the future, controls the future, and he wins the future. Whose side are you on? Finally, number three, not only do we have the summons to the feast and not only do we have the slaughter of the foes, but finally, number three, the supper of the fowls. The supper of the fowls. The birds finally get to do what they've been longing to do. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword. This is a description very quickly of what Jesus describes in Matthew 25. The rest who are there, who are alive, who had been fighting with the Antichrist, with the false prophet, th those two are taken, seized, killed, and thrown. Uh, they're actually not killed. They're thrown alive to that second death in the lake of fire. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. But the rest who were following with him, every single person in the world who had taken the mark of the beast is judged at that moment. And they're killed. They're killed with the sword that comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all of the birds are filled with their flesh. Millions of people are in this valley. They've all left their places of residence. They're all following the Antichrist, which is exactly what we saw as the bold judgment that God is bringing them to this valley of decision, as Joel 3 calls it. And no one is able to bury the bodies of their fellow comrades, because they're all gone. No one is left alive of their fellow comrades in this army. There's not one remaining soldier. There's not one remaining human who took the mark of the beast still alive. 
Now, again, we're probably not talking billions of people because of all the destruction of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. You know, just one seal alone said it destroys a quarter of the population. One trumpet alone destroys a third of the population. In the bowl judgments, all the fish of the sea die, all the oceans are turned into blood, the fresh waters are turned into blood, there's the hailstorms, there's the earthquakes. So we're, we're not talking many people. But every single person who is alive at that time will have made their decision. Either I worship the Antichrist and I follow him, or I worship the Savior and I follow him. Ezekiel chapter 39 that we read, if we had gotten further, Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 12 says that it takes seven months to clean up this battle, to clean up after the carnage. It takes seven months. It's so destructive that Daniel chapter 12, there's, there's a strange verse at the end of Daniel chapter 12 that uh, Daniel splits up the 70th week, that period of seven years, into two halves, and then he tacks on a little bit to the end of that second half. And I think he's doing that. He tacks on a, a couple months to the end of that second half. I think he does that because of this carnage. There's going to need to be cleanup that's happening. And again, that's why the vultures were created. They're filled with their flesh. They're filled with their flesh. We see the summons to the feast. We see God destroying his foes and slaughtering them. And we see this supper of the birds. What are we supposed to do with this as we end chapter 19? I've had amazing conversations with many of you, and, and a common theme runs throughout, which is, ah, uh, judgment again? <laughs> judgment again? Judgment again? And I know that this is judgment, but I think that there's hope inside of it. Application number one, God has this day on his calendar, and no one is stopping it. He literally created vultures for this day. And he's ordaining that they reproduce enough to have a number that will do the job that needs to be done on this day. If he's done that, then you know there is no maverick molecule in the universe. There is no uh, action or attitude or item that goes without his knowledge or ordaining or allowing or providentially predestining. God is in control of all of it. And that would be somewhat encouraging as a non-believer, but as a believer, that becomes wildly encouraging. Because Romans 8.28 says that God then causes everything for a believer to work out for our good. For a non-believer, they don't have that promise. They just know that someone's in control of this, but they don't have any promise that it's working for their good. For you and for me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the promise that God's controlling everything for your greatest good. And yes, that includes judgment. Yes, that includes suffering. Yes, that includes persecution and trials. But you have a promise. And we sang it earlier. It's a line that, that I think we can sing without feeling the full gravity of what the sentence means. I know my pain will not be wasted. Brothers and sisters, that's what's being told to us here at the end of Revelation 19. Every single painful moment that you and I go through will never be wasted because we have a God who's in control enough of the vultures that fly at, at, at 37,000 feet in the air that know exactly when to descend at the Battle of Armageddon. God knows every number of hair that's on your head. 
He knows when a bird falls. He knows when a sparrow dies. And he has summoned all of those birds to this supper. He also summoned you to a supper. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he summoned you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're not going to be at this supper. You're going to watch this supper, but you're not going to be feasting at this supper. You've already feasted with Christ. Number two, not only is God sovereign, but number two, evil will be destroyed. Evil will be destroyed. I have people ask me this a lot. Why doesn't Jesus just stop it? Look at the evil that's going on. Look at the atrocities that are going on in the world, even in our country. Why doesn't God just step in and stop it? Brothers and sisters, that desire that you have in your heart to say, God, why don't you do something about this? God is saying, first of all, you're saying the same thing that the martyrs are saying in Revelation 6, right? You're saying the same words, God, do something. When are you going to step in? When are you going to let righteousness reign? When are you going to destroy evil? Why are you letting this happen? And number two, God is saying, just a little while longer. I'm coming back, and I will destroy evil, but just a little while longer. I'm not done yet giving time. I'm not done with patience waiting for people to repent. God, in essence, is saying to you and to me today, I'm waiting to destroy evil so that you can go into a world of evil and push that evil back with the loveliness of Jesus Christ, with the holiness of our Savior. Share the gospel. Let the church advance and at some point in the future, Jesus will come back and will destroy evil once and for all. Application number three. This destruction, yet again, is a picture of the wrath that you and I deserve. And that wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that you and I don't have to fear it ever again. Even when we read these verses, there should be some hint of terror in your heart as you read it and then a sigh of relief that it is finished at the cross it's been paid in full first thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 we are waiting for the son to come from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is jesus who has rescued us from the wrath to come first thessalonians 5 verse 9 god has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our lord jesus christ 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8 describe this as well. God's wrath is being held back right now. It exists in all of its fury, and one day it will be unleashed on the earth, but right now it's being held back. If you're here this morning and you don't know that your wrath has been paid in full, you don't know that your sins, though deserving of judgment, have been paid at the cross so that you do not have to die in your sins. If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, today is the day to turn to Jesus and live. Today is the day to walk out of this room knowing that you've been forgiven, knowing that you've been reconciled, knowing that you have a Father who loves you, not a judge who is against you. Turn to Jesus and live. Finally, number four, fourth point of application. So not only is God sovereign, not only will evil be destroyed, not only is there no more wrath for us to face as believers, but finally, number four, we must worship Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Worship Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Prophet, priest, and king. Those are Old Testament offices. Prophet spoke on behalf of God. Priest interceded uh, on behalf of the people to God and on behalf of God to the people. 
king ruled over God's people, in God's stead, over God's people. Never did one person hold all three of those offices at the same time. It wasn't even allowed, right? You remember King Uzziah tried to do the office of the priest, and, and he was struck down with leprosy for that. There were some people that were both king and prophet. That would be a David figure and a Saul figure. There was also people that were both prophet and priest. That would be like a Samuel figure. But no one was ever prophet, priest, and king, except for Jesus. These three offices are, are so cherished in Judaism, by the way, that some Jews believe that there will be three messiahs. There will be a prophet messiah, a priest messiah, and a king messiah. And Jesus says, I'm the messiah, and I fulfill all of them. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the one who has spoken on behalf of God. He is the prophet, the firstborn of the dead. Why did he die? To be the mediator between God and man, our priest, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is Jesus. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And he is coming back, yes, to destroy those who fight against him. If you don't understand the wrath of God, you're not going to understand how gentle and sweet and beautiful and gracious he is. So we have to stare at the wrath of God. But we also have to understand that for those who are a part of his kingdom, citizens in his kingdom, following him as our amazing king, we get to be clothed in that white linen, that pure linen, as a part of Christ's bride, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we bow the knee to him as king. There are two suppers in Revelation 19. There's the supper in verse 5 with the small and the great. Again, no socioeconomic division. The small and the great. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And then there's the supper of God. The great supper of God. It's the supper where the vultures feast on the bodies of those enemies of God. You'll either be a part of the bride of Christ or face God's wrath. For the ones that are at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they've been purchased with a price, a covenant that Jesus, as priest, mediated, as prophet, spoke to us on behalf of God the Father, and as king, offers to us entrance into his kingdom. He is a lamb who is our king, and our king is coming. Are you ready for him? Father, thank you so much for your word that reminds us of the stark reality of the only two options that we have, either the marriage supper of the Lamb or the supper of God as your wrath is poured out on your enemies. That's why we together say, you are king, and we hail your power, your name, not just because of fear, knowing that you are the God of the universe and an authority over us, but also because of praise, affection, love, and, and ultimately thanksgiving that you, though absolutely justified if you wanted to just send us all to hell, you in your grace said, no, I'm going to create a plan of redemption to save my enemies. It'd be one thing for a man to die for his friend, like Paul says in Romans 5. It's quite another for you to demonstrate your love that you, our king, would die in place of guilty citizens who hated your kingdom, who hated your kingship, who hated your rule and reign. And you not only die for your citizens who were committing cosmic treason against you, 
but you bring them in as citizens who now love you and now as family members, sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ himself to rule and to reign with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So yes, with fear and trembling, we praise you, but with hearts that are overflowing with joy and gratitude, we say thank you. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing All Hail the Power? power of Jesus name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Let's do that even in our lives and as we live our lives as a song of praise before our God. Our benediction this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. He's coming back, amen? Let's live today in light of that day. God bless you as you enjoy Christ this Lord's day. God bless.